Hello and welcome to Rollins Around Town. I'm Sam Stark and I serve as the Vice President of Communications and External Relations here at Rollins College. Rollins Around Town is a showcase of outstanding people who make dynamic and important contributions to the Rollins campus or throughout Central Florida. In both cases, these are difference makers who help uplift the mission and brand of Rollins and who help make our region a special place to live, learn, and work. Today, I am delighted to welcome Paul Day. Paul is a world-famous artist and sculptor who was commissioned to create a sculpture of Fred Rogers, probably the most famous alumnus of Rollins College. Paul was born in England and currently resides in France. His work is unique, amazing, and truly iconic. Some of his iconic sculptures are The Meeting Place at St. Pancras International Station in London, The Queen Mother Memorial in the Mall in Westminster in London, the Iraq and Afghanistan Memorial, also in Westminster, and a number of other pieces throughout England, New Zealand, Belgium, France, and the United States. Paul, I did you no justice with this introduction, but I'm honored to have you on the show and welcome you back to Rollins College. Sam, it's lovely to be back. Um, I feel somewhat... Um flattered by the exuberance of that introduction <laughs> i don't pretend in any way shape or form to be uh, to be quite as uh, honorable as you propose but i accept the compliment Excellent. gratefully as you should well good well before we dive into to really how your involvement with rollins transpired tell us a little bit about your journey that led you uh, as a young boy uh, in england to art school and and to a love and and talent for sculpting well I'll try and be brief. I uh, was born into a, a small family. I have an older brother who was three years my senior when I was born. He's still three years my senior, strangely <laughs> enough. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and my brother had the gift of the gab, as we say in England. He could, as a little boy, stand on the family table in front of all the friends and family and tell, tell stories and jokes and imitate famous personalities. And I came along, a very shy child, very ill at ease with language. I had this elder brother who, who um, had the family spellbound <laughs> with his linguistic <laughs> gifts. And therefore, I would hide in my mother's skirt tails. And um, I discovered, little by little, that I could draw and enjoyed drawing. And it somehow gave me a voice, the voice that I didn't have. Right. Living up under the, in the shadow of this towering figure that was my elder brother. We are, by the way, very, very good friends. I love it. <laughs> and, uh, and we both recognize and acknowledge each other's gifts. But so drawing for me started as a very young, young child. At school, apparently, my mother never ceases to tell me that, um, <laughs> that my first primary school teacher, when I was a very young boy, said, took her aside and said to her, do you know, um, Madeline, that your son is probably a born artist? Hmm. That was uh, what... what um, started to sow the seed in my mother's mind that I might have a future in this. I just um, enjoyed drawing more than any other subject. In fact, although I was academically reasonable in the early days at school, I was never terribly gripped by language. Language always, um, always seemed to betray me. I could never get my words out properly, and I always ended up putting my foot in it with words. Um, and I could never obviously rival my brother's abilities. Right. Whereas with drawings, I learned quickly that, that my sense of humor could be portrayed through caricature. And I remember as, um, uh, when I was leaving primary school, we went, we went on a, a trip, a school trip, 
to Canterbury in England to visit the cathedral and to think about the history of pilgrimage in that part of the world. And during that week, we did lots of various events. And uh, when I came home, I made a series of drawings about that trip for the school. Hmm. Um, I made a drawing for every day of the week that we spent in Canterbury. And the drawings were um, large cartoons with all the characters in my class and the teachers being portrayed in quite a wicked, cruel way at times, um, but to illustrate, you know, my, the funny side I saw of that trip. The headmaster loved these drawings. They were put on the school wall, mm. and I felt incredibly proud. That right. was almost like my first artistic success. Um, over my teenage years, uh, my, f- my family broke up. Unfortunately, my, my parents divorced, and um, I was sort of living with, with foster families for a few years. And my education got a little bit, went a little bit haywire. Um, I didn't do very well at um, what you call high school, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so there was no question of me ending up going to university or anything like that. I didn't have the grades, and neither did I have the interest. Mm-hmm. So, um, so at the age of eighteen, I, I got had to get a job. Um, in and in, in the job that you in those days, you opened the newspaper, you right. looked at the uh, the column of uh, of job uh, offers, and um, basically it was work in a bank or join the civil service. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, f- I phoned the bank, uh, got a, got an interview, and was offered a job. Um, believe it or not, on two and a half thousand pounds a year salary, which is probably what three thousand dollars a year salary in those days. Um, very little (laughs) as it is today but so i I, I spent um two years working um after after leaving high school and on the very first day of this particular banking job i knew that this was not where my interests lay that i had to find a way out of real work Um, i realized quickly as well that um politics in the grown-up world in within a bank within an office was was quite nasty it was quite bitchy the people were not kind to each other and uh, and i wasn't very happy in that sort of environment i i didn't feel i wasn't fired with a passion to get on in the world and to sort of crime climb the uh, the the ladder uh for promotion i i just didn't see the point right um so very quickly, uh, I realized that actually the thing I, I, I enjoyed, I came back to all the time, was drawing and painting. Um, I found a way to get a government grant uh, to, to study for a year in, an, in a little art school. It's, it's, a, it's called a foundation year. It's a year that one would do before going on to do a fine art degree. Okay. Um, and because I was able to get some government support... Um, I went back to live with my mother and her new husband for a year. And that was a a transformational experience for me. And I have to say why in particular, because on the very first day of art school, I met a rather attractive brunette young art student called Catherine with sparkling eyes, um, obviously quite an intelligent young lady. And we struck up a friendship on the very first day and two weeks later we we went out on our first date well this particular Catherine happens to be Mrs. Day (laughs) 34 and a half years later and um, Catherine introduced me to a family of um, academics and cultured people Um, her father is a brilliant poet and author very very famous actually poet and author Um, her mother was a chemist and also a teacher 
Um, I'd never experienced um, people quite like them before, and it was very odd and and frightening actually to go and have dinner with with my girlfriend's family because right. I just didn't know what to say. I knew nothing about anything, <laughs> but um, little by little. Um, the affection between myself and that family gradually, gradually developed. Um, but above all, Catherine had been to very, very good private schools. She'd had a brilliant education. And, and we'd visit some museums together. And I learned, started to learn a little bit about art, um, about the history of art. And it, it, it was um, something that really bound us together and opened my eyes to the possible right. within artistic expression. Um, I... I had no idea uh, of the of the diversity, the uh, the possibilities of, of storytelling, um, of um, of thought that right. could be put into a work of art. I just looked at the world around me and thought, well, I'll try and copy that. I'll try and copy this, or I'll do a, a cartoon. I mean, I had no, you know, no no training really, no cultural education to speak of. Um, and so over time that year um, opened my eyes also to, to the possibilities of sculpture, industrial design, printmaking, photography and video. We, we were allowed to, to dabble in lots of different areas of practice. Right. Um, I still uh, saw myself as simply um, somebody who wanted to I illustrate. I loved painting birds and animals, flowers and things like that. Um, I didn't really have an artistic vision, so to speak. And yet the students around me all seemed to be very trendy young people with, with, with lots of sort of weird and wacky ideas. And I didn't know where these wacky ideas came from. Right. Um, I, I was so, um, as it were, uh, uh, naive um, that uh, when, when we eventually ended that course and applied to fine arts degrees, um, well, my, my portfolio was so innocent and simple that I got rejected from the first two art schools that I applied to. Mm. Catherine, of course, sailed into her first choice right. and off she went to do fine art painting at Bristol. Um, I failed to get into my first choice. I failed to get into my <laughs> second choice. And my third and only final choice of college, um, they revealed to me afterwards that the only reason I'd been accepted on the course was not because of the quality of my work, but because they thought I would be a funny person to have around, being so, being so sort of conservative and normal. Um, but anyway, so yes, <laughs> great. these weren't these weren't a promising. Promi this wasn't a promising start to to to, to making a living as a, as a fine artist. Right. Um, however, um, I have always been um, a quite quite. I have perseverance, um, and also I'd seen what it was like to work in in a job that was in which I was unhappy. Also, I had no financial means, so it was a, a make-or-break situation. I had to somehow succeed. And albeit with a modest and fairly irrelevant um, artistic talent, uh, I, I came to discover, um, I have been able to support my, uh, my wife and family for the last 30 years as a professional sculptor, right. um, which I'm sure many of my contemporaries in the, in the art schools went on to do finance jobs and marketing <laughs> jobs banking. And, and banking <laughs> and working in right. shops. Right. And, and it's, it's peculiar uh, because I've certainly uh, hadn't, didn't have the most, um, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't blessed with the greatest art of artistic talents. But I do think that over the years, perseverance 
and um, and also a, an artistic vision have grown within me. Right. And I think that knowing what to do as an artist, having a vision, having some sort of direction, is the key. And and I think that my artistic vision and my artistic direction has come to a certain extent from a place of pain. Mm. Um, I think that one needs actually to be able to to to, to find a, a, something in one's life against which to push. Um, because my parents divorced when I was 13 and the family was really exploded. My mother had a nervous breakdown. My father was playing around with all sorts of other people. It wasn't a happy time. Um, and albeit I uh, was not, um, I was not, um, as it were, meant, I didn't feel myself mentally affected by this at the time. I, all I wanted to do was to try and smooth over, to patch over the difficulties that my family was, was experiencing. I, I, never, I never became rebellious. Right. In fact, I never had a teenage rebellion because I wasn't allowed to have a teenage rebellion. I was living in other people's homes uh, and trying to behave, you know. Right. Um, but I also wanted to patch up somehow the broken world that was in my sphere, you know, in my life. Um, and I think that I learned a great deal. I, I was very fortunate to have some incredibly good Christian people around me who um, helped to uh, guide and steer me in the crises that I experienced as a young person. And um, I think that those crises and those experiences fed into my emotional m sort of maturity. They, they helped me grow uh, in a very particular way as a person um, to experience people and, and, and very difficult relationships. Uh, whereas I think a lot of the people who studied within the art schools I went to hadn't necessarily had quite such perhaps some of the trauma um sure i'm sure many many may have done um of course but i did feel that some of those difficulties gave me a fuel a sort of inner inner fire a steel to want to um to to speak with my work to broken the broken world I, right. as, I, as i saw it i wanted to to i had something to say with my art i felt about um you know the fragility of of our emotional state how easily it is for our world to be turned upside down um rejection of from your parents or from your loved ones or from girlfriends and boyfriends and right. so on can really break your heart at that age and i had my heart broken on a couple of occasions as well by other relationships <laughs> and i feel that somehow that gives one a, a, a um, some material which can then be transformed into a into a, uh, a um, something something to express later right. on wow that's a pretty amazing story i mean truly to become successful at anything sort of with with that background is uh, is, is is quite remarkable so um impressive so you wh what year did you graduate institute the art institute i graduated in 1991 okay and my wife graduated at the same time. Uh, in fact, my girlfriend of the time. Yes. We actually married <laughs> very, very unfashionably. <laughs> um, I was 24, Catherine was 22, two weeks after our final degree shows. Oh, fantastic. We actually tied the knot. We obviously were very committed. And oh, yes. we, we both shared the same vision and the same faith and philosophy, I would say. Um, and I left art school with both a commission 
that uh, that I'd won through competing uh, in a, in a local competition for for a quite a famous um, author actually in the UK called Jilly Cooper, a popular author of romantic fiction, but a very good writer and a very 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 bright lady. She and her husband commissioned me to make a sculpture in my in my in the year immediately after leaving college, which gave me great hope actually. Um, she had she li- she lives in uh, she and her husband her late husband live in a 14th century um, chantry, which is a, uh, an old religious building. And uh, I had designed a sculpture for them um, of a sort of visitation, angels flying out of nowhere right. and passing on good news to a group of people. Uh, they, they'd, they'd loved the design. They chose it as a, as a winning design for the competition, and they actually decided to commission me to make it. So rather than having to leave art school and go and stack shelves or <laughs> flip burgers, which was the likely outcome, right. I had a job to do. And we agreed a price of £5,000 at the time for a large resin sculpture. I was going to make it. The, the college, the, my art school, lent me studio space because I had nowhere to work. Um, and I worked so over the summer months after graduating in the college. Uh, and eventually, six months later, I I had this sculpture that I hung in a local cathedral so that I could present it to Leo and Jilly Cooper for the first time. Wow. Well, Leo was ill, but Jilly came to see the sculpture hanging in this beautiful cathedral, and she was so bowled over by seeing it that she wrote me a check for twice the agreed amount of the commission. Wow. 10,000 pounds, yeah. which in 1991 was was a massive sum yeah. of money for That's, me. Right, it's three and a half years working at the bank. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So we we um, that gave me a, 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 a courage and hope that somehow I might be able to actually make a living right. doing this stuff. We we hung the sculpture on the wall of this chantry on Good Friday in 1992. It was blessed by the local Catholic priest and a load of monks and friends and so on, and everyone was was was. Um, extremely impressed yeah um and so my sort of sculpting career began the the story that that struck me as i as i read you know some of your uh, bio and, and information was the spring of 2002 so almost 10 years later from your first paid you know uh, yes. uh, uh, commission yes there was a competition at uh the prestigious cass sculpture foundation in goodwood england and Six shortlist artists were presented presented their your ideas and exhibited uh, maquettes to a jury made up of historians and journalists and architects and art experts. And after their deliberation, the co- the committee selected your vision for the Battle of Britain. Yes, um, pretty significant. What I, I was going to ask you, and you, you sort of you know, I'm not sure uh, it's a fair question now, but was this? A bigger spark that ignited your career or was it the first commission or was it something in between this just stood out to me as something pretty significant this is a this this has led to an an awful lot of of other monumental pieces and i would say that um one thing i would say is my wife and i moved to france um two years after graduating because she's half french we um, had a we had no future at the time. We didn't really feel we had the means to practice our art uh, in England. So we we thought it would be adventurous and fun to go on the continent. Um, that meant that I left England behind for uh, you know from '92 and uh, started to to try and create something in France. 
I had done some exhibitions in Paris, in the first one in 95, the second one in 97, and that had been spotted by um, one of the uh, architectural curators at the Pompidou Centre in Paris. So my first big commission came not from England but from Belgium. Mm. This, this particular person, a wonderful guy called Jean de Thiers, took me to Belgium to meet some architects and bankers, funnily enough, <laughs> the, the president of a bank actually, whereas I'd been at the bottom of the ladder, all of a sudden <laughs> right. I was introduced to the guy at the top. And, uh, and, and I was given a, a commission which lasted two years to make a 75-foot-long um, a, a terracotta frieze um, describing the history and the spirit of the city of Brussels. Mm. And if you remember at the beginning of our conversation, I described how I'd done a series of drawings as a child at school following a trip to Canterbury. Yep. Well, this was effectively the grown-up version of that. <laughs> it involved research, uh, living in Brussels, visit, getting to know the city. And I created a, what is effectively an, 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 an overflowing um, a, a picture, series of pictures, to describe both contemporary life and historical life in Brussels. So that was probably the first big project. Right. The Battle of Britain monument competition that you referred to came about, again, by a serendipitous piece of chance. I had won a, a prize in Paris at a foundry called Seuss Foundry, one of the oldest art foundries in, in um, France. It happened to be owned by an American guy called Wendell Smith, from Connecticut, and um, he and I, obviously being both English speakers, hit it off really well. When I met him to receive my prize, Wendell was just so cool. Now, I hadn't met many, many Americans in my time up to that <laughs> point, and I have to say, Wendell looked like a film star, sounded like a film star, behaved like a <laughs> film star, and I was under the spell of Wendell and still have great affection for him. He suggested to me, as I was going back home to see my family at Christmas, Paul, why don't you come and we can play a round of golf? Now, I've only ever played probably two <laughs> rounds of golf in my life, right. but I just said, Wendell, that will be wonderful. And it happened to be raining on the day when we were planning this round of golf. And so Wendell, in, instead of just abandoning our rendezvous, said, I think I can introduce you to, to a couple of friends of mine who might be useful to you. And it happened to be Wilfred and Jeanette Cass of the famous Goodwood Cass Sculpture Foundation. Fantastic. And that particular meeting happened a few days before Christmas. Um, Wilfred looked at my work and was somewhat dismissive because, of course, it's figurative. It looks a bit old-fashioned. He wasn't terribly impressed. But Jeanette, his wife, thought the work was very interesting. And she talked Wilfred around into the idea of allowing me to present a small exhibition of works in their gallery, which I did. Right. That was a chance meeting. It wasn't supposed to happen. As it turned out, when the exhibition was, uh, was, was shown, an architect from London was visiting to look for sculptors to select to put on a shortlist for this large monument to the Battle of Britain project. And when he saw my work, the reliefs that I do with figures and so on, he thought, hmm, this guy could be a possible candidate. I'd never been asked to compete in a, in a national prestigious competition before, and this was the first. Now, the Battle of Britain... Um, I'm not sure that the audience may be aware quite how mythic this is. This is our Pearl Harbor, in a sense, our, our Dunkirk, and everything rolled into one. This is a moment in history when Britain was fighting Nazi Germany alone 
France had collapsed, Belgium, Holland had collapsed. There, there, obviously, Ireland was neutral. Spain was in the hands of, of, uh, of fascist dictatorship. Uh, Britain was facing this invincible, mighty army of Germany alone in the summer of 1940. And the only thing that stood between Britain's defeat um, was uh, a handful um, of young pilots aged between 18 and 25 Amazing. who were flying Spitfires and Hurricanes over the channel. Amazing. Um, and in my growing up as a child, obviously my parents and grandparents experienced the war firsthand. So, and having seen all the films about, about the war, it was very much part of my psyche. So the honor, the sort of the privilege of being asked to compete to make a monument to this subject blew my mind. I had also been, as a young, as a young lad, in the RAF cadets. I'd always wanted to fly. I'd been to Cranwell, which is the, uh, which is the RAF flight training school, for a week. Okay, I'd have my leg, my, le my knee broken on the very first day and never got to fly. But oh anyway, I still, I'd, I'd had this connection with the RAF and with flying. And, uh, and so my, my, my creative juices were flowing straight right. away. And um, the location in London where the monument was supposed to go, it was not a particularly easy location to deal with. It's on the embankment um, by the River Thames, near to the Houses of Parliament. Um, but um, the, the, the location required a fairly long, low approach to the memorial. And I saw this as an opportunity to, to make a design that would tell the story of the battle, not just from the point of view of pilots, but also from the point of view of Londoners who were being bombed at the time. Um, because I, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of the Bayeux Tapestry, which was um, created uh, after the oh. Normans invaded England in 1066. Right. Well, this was a second attempt to invade England in 1940, and I actually took, as part of my inspiration, the, the, the form of the Bayeux Tapestry. It's like a long cartoon strip telling the story. So my idea was to create almost a sort of sculpted cartoon strip to tell the story of the battle from different perspectives right. and points of view. And uh, miraculously, I have to say miraculously, the design was chosen. And I got to work with a wonderful uh, architect called Tony Dyson, on, with whom I've worked on several other projects. And over a three-year period, I, I was researching, meeting veterans, flying with the RAF, reading countless numbers of pilots' diaries from the day, and gradually put together a composition and made the, made the clay work, which, was, which would lead to the bronze, right. worked on the design of the memorial. So it's 75 feet long. Uh, there are two large panels. One panel describes the life of the RAF in the, in the, in the Battle of Britain. The other panel looks at the life of civilians <laughs> on the ground, and all the other aspects of what this battle meant to British people at the time. It was unveiled by the Prince of Wales in uh, 2005. And uh, the Prince of Wales has been coming in and out of my life for a few years now. <laughs> um, uh, the first contact I had with the Prince of Wales was when, as a graduating student, I made an application to his charitable trust for some funds to be able to buy some tools when I left art school to help set up my first uh, studio. Right. And um, I was, I gratefully received a thousand pounds from the Prince's uh, Youth Business Trust. And I kept him, out of politeness, out of respect for the Prince of Wales, I had kept him informed as to my progress. Smart. To, yeah. to, 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 to validate the trust that his 
charity had put in, placed in me. Well, the Prince of Wales was delighted in his speech to say that he had discovered me, um, <laughs> that uh, he'd been following my work for, for over 10 years. And it was a joy, actually, to, to experience uh, both the, um, obviously, a, an official unveiling in London with all the pomp and ceremony that you can expect. Right. And also to get some um, very positive feedback from, from the media in general. That's fantastic. Well, you're trying to name drop the Prince of Wales, but more importantly, you got to meet the great Alan Keane, Rollins College Board Chairman, past chairman and trustee. And that's really how we got connected with Paul Day as an institution. So I kid, but um, from we, we have had Alan on the show and he's, he's sort of talked a little bit about you and, and this project, but can you, from your seat, what happened? How did Rollins College, through yeah. Alan Keane, meet and learn about Paul Day? Well, um, it's, it's strange really, because I live in a very quiet rural corner of France in a region called Burgundy, which is famous most notably for its world, world-class wine. Um, I live in an old stone farmhouse um, in the countryside with my donkeys and my dogs, um, <laughs> and uh, my studio is in a stone barn, which is quite attractive. Um, and for a number of years now, um, we have been uh, receiving the old group of guests who are traveling through Burgundy to come and look at my gallery and to visit the studio. I have some friends who work in the tourist industry, notably on a boat yes. um, called the Fleur de Lys, which is actually the symbol of the Prince of Wales crest, surprisingly, or coincidentally. Yes. Now, Alan and Linda Keane and their friends, uh, the Blydenbergs and the Hadleys, were uh, a party of six on one of these luxury barge cru- cruises through Burgundy. The week they were there, um, I was spending time at a foundry in the Czech Republic on some casting, and my wife was at home, and she got a call from the boat saying, we have some guests who quite like art, and they've seen your book on board, and have asked if they could possibly visit the <laughs> studio. So Catherine, bless her. Uh, obviously accepted and uh, was delighted to show the group around. Right. Alan and Linda, obviously, with their friends. Um, now, uh, they seemed quite impressed, actually, uh, with the work, and they went back to the boat and talked about it. And they asked the, the crew members on the boat whether there was any chance of actually meeting me. And, and I was driving home overnight in my van, as you do from, you know, uh, 800 miles away um, to, 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 get, to get back. And uh, Catherine said, oh, um, had a lovely group through the uh, studio yesterday. They'd like to meet you. So um, I went off on my motorcycle. I'm, I'm a bit of an American inf- aficionado. So I have a Harley Davidson, nice. um, which, is, which is rather my pride and joy, <laughs> as well as a Dodge Ram V8, which is quite rare in, uh, in our part of the world. That's but anyway, that's You're almost American, story. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I so I rode the Harley over to uh, to the boat and um, first I couldn't find the boat so I thought I, I rode home again and said to, and I phoned up the boat and said look I, I can't find you sorry you know I'm, I'm I'm really tired I need to go to bed and right. they said oh no no this group would love to meet you so I went back on the bike and eventually oh, found the boat and had an hour or two on board sipping cocktails um, feeling quite sleepy but being char- you know having charming conversation with these lovely people from Winter Park I'd never heard of Winter Park of course and I'd never heard of Rollins College indeed right. well Alan <laughs> Alan apparently uh, went from um, went from Burgundy in France after the barge trip to London on a train and oh. with with Linda and it's there they saw my statue in St Pancras station um, 
Alan also noted another artwork in the railway station that he seemed to recognise, uh, a neon, pink neon sign hanging from the roof. And it, uh, it connected with him that he'd seen those neon signs somewhere else, and he realised they were in the Orphant Hotel in Winter Park. Oh my anyway, God. that somehow seemed to make a, a meaningful connection to right. Alan. Um, the artist of these neon signs <coughs> is a lady called Tracy Emin, or Emin, who is a very famous British contemporary artist. Um, not necessarily exactly my cup of tea, uh, but I'm very grateful to Tracy because I think it was her work yeah. that prompted Alan to write to me and say, Paul, do you know, we have, I, I'm, a, I'm a trustee of this, uh, this college in Winter Park and um, we have a very famous alumnus called Fred Rogers and we'd like a statue of him. Would you be interested? Now, the name Fred Rogers meant nothing, nothing. to me whatsoever. That's fantastic. My supposition was, okay, well, he might have, succeeded in business or be the president of the golf club or uh, perhaps perhaps he's a politician or something but my instant reaction is to say yes and then i'll think about it later so i said to alan yes of course i'd be delighted to make a statue thinking well i don't really make statues i like telling stories right i don't make statues so two weeks later i think i get another message from alan saying Paul, I've spoken to the president of our of our college and he's keen on the idea. He's looked at your work and thinks we need to explore this subject. Have you looked up Mr. Rogers? And I, I with all in all honesty, I said to Alan, Well, Alan, sorry, I've been I've been really busy. I haven't yet looked up Mr. Rogers. I promise I tomorrow I will look up Mr. Rogers right. on the computer. That is when the bomb exploded, as it were, in my mind. I discovered, obviously, that this man, Mr. Rogers, was not the president of the golf club and he wasn't a politician and he wasn't you know a business a business leader right. all these things are great in their own right Indeed. of course but he had a um, a sort of monumental um, uh, vision and gift uh, that he gave to the world over many years obviously working with children and he was also a christian minister and a uh, a very you know a, a deep thinking um loving person who was respected by so many and i couldn't believe that his name had never ever cropped up in my life before it's unbelievable um and and all my european friends likewise look look with blank a blank expression on their faces when you say have you ever heard of mr rogers that's uh, amazing. yeah come that's, again <laughs> that's so funny so the discovery of of this this incredible um, human being fired my imagination immensely, and um, I'd worked as a church youth leader myself as a young man. I'd been on the receiving end of great Sunday school teachers. I'd had uh, you know all these all the people that have helped me in my life. Well, right. they're all sort of Mister Rogers in a way for me. Right, and um, and so the subject. Uh, of making a sculpture started to um, started to um, uh, turn around in my mind as the summer went on which was in 2019 having met Alan and Linda I happened to be going to Ohio with Catherine to install a sculpture in a house uh, that belongs to a friend and um, Alan realized that I was only a two-hour drive from Latrobe Pennsylvania where Joanne Rogers lived. Right. And so uh, I can't, I don't know exactly who set the meeting up. I can't recall exactly who set it up now. But Catherine and I found ourselves hiring a little car and driving over to meet Joanne Rogers and Bill Isler and a number of, of 
dignitaries from the St. Vincent College in La Trobe. This was obviously another extremely important moment in the story of the Mr. Rogers statue from my point of view. Right. Because the way to fully engage with a subject and the way to be for it to become all enveloping is to have one's heart and mind totally implicated in the work you're doing. It has to become an affair of the heart in my mind yeah. for it to be meaningful, truly deeply meaningful. And meeting Joanne and Bill was a momentous experience. She was, from the very moment we met her, receptive, joyful, funny, um, uh, close. She, yeah. we, 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 we had, um, and I'm sure everyone who met Joanne probably feels the same way, that instantly I felt taken into her confidence and trusted by her. Right. We joked, we laughed, she told us things about her and Fred. Um, and she just brought Fred to life for me. Um, and herself, of course, because yeah. they were a team, a, a, you know, a perfect team. Um, and that was absolutely the grist to the mill of designing and conceiving of a monument to Fred. It became clear from the word go that, in my mind, Fred would not have appreciated being stuck on a pedestal and sort of admired. Indeed. He always deflected attention away from himself to the children and to his work. Right. And back to us to ask us, what are we doing, as it were, for, our, for the children in, in our world? And so my, as I started to, to really research Fred's life and look through all the archive material and so on, I realized I didn't want to make a statue of Fred. I wanted to illustrate the, 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 the crux of his life and work, the real meaning behind why Fred uh, is, is worthy of being celebrated in this way, and that was obviously... On his, you know, on his hands and knees, practically, with children, communicating with them, listening to them, speaking to them in the way that he did so, um, so brilliantly, and and so the composition moved away, as it were, in my mind, from a statue to yes. a, um, a an environment, really, a a, a picture of right. scene. Yes, yeah. and remembering that I'd never heard of him, a sculpture <laughs> like this is going to outlive the memory of Fred yeah. to a certain degree. For sure. People in perhaps a hundred years, he'll only be an historic figure. But but if the sculpture explains to people why he's there and shows them what he did, then I think it's the story, it encapsulates the story in and it becomes a um uh, an educational tool in some way, as well as a work of art, because people can then yeah. look at the look at the artwork understand it in a different way so i designed i designed uh, the sculpture in such a way that fred is with the children and he's he is the sort of center of the focus of the of the monument but he's not he's not he's not being adored by these children he is interacting with them um and and, and on the back of the sculpture i i've included all the puppet characters <laughs> and the castle to to sort of celebrate also the team who created the program to 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 um, to show that actually um, the 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 you know the icon of Mr. Rogers, as it were, it, it's the program, the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood program that that, yes. that spoke to so many millions of young Americans and their parents, and I wanted I wanted to celebrate the program and and in, by um, by uh, implication all the people who worked right. with Mr. Rogers throughout those years of of service to, right. to the American public. It's a very holistic um, 
representation of Mr. Rogers' life and his journey, um, where it could have, to your point, very simply been Mr. Rogers standing there, and we all bow to Mr. Rogers, but th- this tells such a, a deep story. It is certainly partly about Mr. Rogers, but it's also about so much more uh, about his mission and his legacy. So that's it, it, it was an amazing piece to see, and it's been an honor to <laughs> at least help um, it, within the institution change the, the, the terminology from a statue, right? We'd get emails, hey, the Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. statue, the Mr. Rogers, and we'd say, no, it is not a statue. This is a sculpture. This is a story. Uh, so it's kind of been fun. And, and <laughs> yes. obviously when people see it, they'll, they'll, they'll get it. Um, anyway, it's a, it's a magnificent piece. If, you, if people, we've, we've leaked and shared bits and pieces of it. But the sculpture uh, will be uh, unveiled uh, October 28th, so just a couple short weeks from now. And people can follow it, and they can learn more about it uh, on our website, on Rollins Social Media. I'm sure if people search Paul Day, Rollins College, Mr. Rogers, they'll, they'll, they'll find some bits and pieces of it. Um, t- talk for a minute, if you would, about the location. You know, from your perspective, again, you don't know Rollins all that well, but mm-hmm. It's right between the chapel, the Knowles Memorial Chapel, fairly iconic, and the Annie Russell Theater, which too, in its own right, is fairly iconic as the longest running theater program in, the, in, in all of Florida. What, that location, what, what, what did that stand out to you, or why did that stand out to you? Well, the, the question of location from the very beginning was uncertain. And right. I'd, I'd walked the uh, grounds of the college with the president, Grant, and, um, and Alan Keane, on a number of occasions, trying to find an appropriate spot for the for the future sculpture, which at the time wasn't necessarily fully designed, and it was only um, I believe towards the beginning of this year, when Alan passed on the news that Grant had felt the chapel courtyard would be um, possibly an appropriate spot. It wasn't on the list of potential candidate spots to begin yeah, with. To start. Um, it, 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 it therefore had been off-grid, as it were. When, uh, when the news of this potential dis- uh, location came through to me, it seemed uh, instantly perfectly meaningful because between the chapel and the theatre, um, Fred Rogers was both a performer, a musician, and a minister. Therefore, yes. logically and and. Um, there's, there's a, he, he was deeply connected to both of those two fields of practice, as right. it were. Um, the fact also that it's a, a, a sort of almost like a quadrangle that's closed um, with walkways on three sides. Um, it feels very contained and a place or that, that is um, a one where uh, of meditation, of thought, of quietness. It's, it's a little world within a world it's just slightly separate from the main campus in the sense that it is it is bordered as it were and it, it's it's self-contained um the design of the statue and the scale of the statue i think are going to fit uh, very very well and pleasingly yes into the space right um obviously as a as a as a as a creator of things visual things my desire is that people see it and res- and um have an encounter that surprises them, that pleases them, that intrigues them. It will. Um, that the work isn't doesn't leave people indifferent. And I think that the chapel courtyard with the gardens around will be a natural place to sort of slow one step, possibly go and sit with a cup of coffee, have a chat with a friend. Yes. 
and spend some time communing, as it were, in the gardens, with the gardens, and with the sculpture. So I am excited by uh, the prospect of bringing all these elements together. The, the courtyard is being completely repaved, yes. re-landscaped. The sculpture, of course, has its own plinth. Um, we'll have some lighting. And although this has been a remote conversation because I've been stuck, obviously, in <laughs> France and right. not able to come over these last 18 months, um, hopefully the, the skills and hard work of the design team uh, and uh, in conversation with myself, hopefully we've come up with a, uh, with a design plan that will look um, right and fitting and... Uh, aesthetically agreeable really in yes. the courtyard and, and regenerate that, no that doubt. spot. No doubt. You might feel a little uncomfortable answering this question, but this, the show's called Rollins Around Town, but you've seen it with other works that you've done. What will the legacy of this piece be to Rollins, to Winter Park, and really to all of Central Florida? I mean, I know you're gonna, you have some humility and you'll say, well, you know, but people will know about this from all over, certainly the country. Uh, Mr. Rogers does have a legacy that's, that's worldwide in, mm. in many ways. What will this piece do? In well, the- uh, that's a good and interesting question because uh, as, I was, as I was making this, I, I, I looked at what had been done before of Mr. Rogers. Um, and as far as I know, there were only two bronze statues in right. America of, of him. One I saw in La Trobe, which is a very modest, dare I say, not terribly successful likeness of Mr. Rogers sitting on a bench Agree. in the center of La Trobe, which is okay. It's, it's nice to, dis- to have that legacy of him in his hometown. The Pittsburgh piece, which is, again, a large Mr. Rogers sitting by the river, I think, yes. um, is, again, shows a solitary man seated. And it's done in a style that is not particularly lifelike, and n- doesn't necessarily tell you anything about Mr. Rogers if you've never heard of him before. And so therefore my feeling was that this piece should, um, as you've mentioned, as we've mentioned, tell a bigger story of who Mr. Rogers wa- was, what he did, why he is celebrated. And of course, therefore, I hope that the statue will be good enough to to draw people to draw visitors and admirers of Fred people who grew up with Fred whose whose children now are watching cartoons based on Fred's characters right. I hope that people can come to it with um, with a feeling of joy um, to see him celebrated in this way hopefully they will be impressed by the artistic quality of the work but also no doubt I and I genuinely hope that people will have a, a feeling of of connection with him and the program in a sort of nostalgic way right um, being reminded of the of the, the the impact that he had on their lives you know i think um fred's addressing children of course each one of us has the child within i think i as a creative artist have tried very hard not to smother that child within perhaps more than in some other professions where you have to become hard-nosed and you know robust right in my in my field of work one needs to remain to a certain extent childlike and playful and listen to that child's voice um my my feeling is that we are only truly 
human in the best possible sense when we are aware of the child within, of the voice within, because that child, and that's why I find Mr. Rogers such a, a fabulous subject for work, that child is is the sort of precious, in his own words, will be the image of God, um, unblemished in a sense, untarnished by the, the troubles and cares of the world. Right. And And the way in which he spoke to those children and speaks to children still he the the impact upon the future grown-up person that that child becomes i think is is unmeasure is incalculable yes we cannot measure just how much good comes from the voice of what wisdom and delicacy and politeness and care from mr rogers and his team because those those values some children are born into homes that are brutal um, into a world that is uncaring and unloving and we all to a certain extent experience pain as children but some children obviously if they don't know love from their immediate family then perhaps the only love they have known in those early years might have come through the television set right um and so the extent to which the ripples of goodness and of and of consideration and kindness that 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 he and that team that program have imparted well um it is it is obviously a tremendous responsibility and honor to be paying a homage to that work yeah um and i would like the piece to be a constant reminder to us all of the 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 essence of us is the child within and our responsibility no matter what, wherever we are, to children around us, is to is to respect them, to treat them as as fully fledged individuals, right. um, to uh, to protect them, and to and to show them the right way to behave. You know, the right way to to deal with the passions that inflame us and that trouble us, and so on. You know, and I hope the sculpture can be a little bit of a nudge uh, to us all. You know, to to look again at how we no respond to the young. It's an amazing piece of art, and I've only seen it in pictures. And and the final product that you created, um, you were you're good enough to share some concepts and some ideas along the way. But the final product is, is amazing and, and is just so, um, it, it represents Fred. It's so genuine. And it's um, just an incredibly warm and, and emotional piece because, to your point, everyone ha- who knows Mr. Rogers had some experience in some way, either they're like one of the children who's represented in there or, or, or one of the characters and or Mr. Rogers himself, you know, really uh, identi- you, you, one will identify. So um, I can't wait to see it on campus. Um, October 28th is the uh, private unveiling. Um, and then the campus always is open, and, and listeners are welcome to come and, and, and check it out. To, you, anybody uh, can check out Paul's work, uh, pauldaysculpture.com, uh, pauldaysculpture.com. There's information and social media, and, and there's a link to an amazing book uh, that, that Paul has created. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking a little bit of time on this uh, trip to um, stop in and see us, and then we'll see you again at the, uh, at the sculpture unveiling. Thank you, Paul Day, for uh, for your amazing work and being with us today on Rollins Around Town. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. 
So thanks uh, for uh, joining us today. Uh, Thanks to Angel, our third-year student here at Rollins, for operating the board and serving as our marketing coordinator for the show this entire school year. To keep updated on all of our shows and guests, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Rollins Around Town and subscribe to our podcast, Rollins Around Town, on Apple, Google, and Spotify. With that, we thank you and wish you a great day in Winter Park.